Hello, and welcome to Crashing the War Party. I'm here with my compatriot, as always, Daniel Larison, as we embark on the slog we call Testing the Blob. This month has been full of anniversaries, a year of the war in Ukraine, 20 years since the invasion of Iraq, and eight years since the U.S. helped Saudi Arabia launch airstrikes on Yemen. In every case, there are lobbyists, grifters, and diehard American proponents who insist that militarized solutions are the best way to handle geopolitical problems. We're here to give voice to alternative points of view, as so many in Washington have proven their positions to be self-serving and even profit-making at times. So today we'll be talking to retired Lieutenant Colonel Danny Davis of Defense Priorities about the recent U.S. airstrikes in Syria. But first, we'd like to get some of the headlines uh, that might have dropped under the radar during the news this week. Dan and I have chosen a couple each to flesh out, and I guess I'll start. And I'd like to start with North Korea. Dan, uh, it would seem that Kim Jong-un can't get no satisfaction. After test firing a range of missiles this year, including the Hwasong 17, an intercontinental ballistic missile known as the country's monster missile, He said Tuesday that his country is seeking to acquire more nuclear material to build a bomb and to extend their nuclear arsenal exponentially. After all this testing, including two short-range missiles on Monday, he doesn't seem to be getting the attention that he wants. Why is that? And is Washington risking a lot by continuing to drill with South Korea with seemingly no diplomatic strategy accompanying it for containing all of this saber rattling by North Korea? Yeah, thanks, Kelly. So I think one of the problems that we have with our North Korea policy is that we we keep demanding uh, a really unrealistic uh, set of conditions for North Korea to meet before uh, any uh, progress on sanctions relief can be made. Uh, of course, we we keep insisting on on denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula, which in practice means the disarmament of North Korea, uh, and that's all. And the North Koreans have responded to these demands in the past by uh, by refusing to to go along with them and by building up their nuclear arsenal even more than they had before. And and you see that uh, with these latest developments, they're they want to acquire more fissile material. They want to start developing and deploying uh, tactical nukes, which is worrisome because that implies that there's there are scenarios that they're thinking about where they might use uh, tactical nukes, uh, battlefield nukes, uh, and not just have them on on their missiles. And so that's uh, that's very concerning because it suggests that they're they're envisioning scenarios where they might uh, resort to first use uh, first use of those weapons. And where they, uh, where they're, they're certainly interested in building a lot more than what they already have, and so what what we need to be doing, and I, I think that the military exercises are more of this uh, uh, status quo policy where we, we just keep doing the same things and expecting something different to happen. Uh, the, the military exercises are not helping. If anything, they're they're agitating and antagonizing North Korea into doing more of their own missile tests, and then that seems to be clear from the 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 dynamic that we've seen play out over the last couple of years. Uh, what we need to be doing instead is to try to find some kind of arrangement that they they would be willing to accept that caps the size of their arsenal, that creates the possibility of of some kind of inspections into seeing 
how many they have deployed and what kind they have deployed, uh, and, and to actually have a real arms control regime with North Korea, uh, given that their nuclear arsenal is not going to go anywhere. Uh, and so I, I've, it seems to me that we've, we've really stopped trying to solve the problem. We're, we're trying mostly to ignore it. Uh, Washington is mostly trying to ignore it. And, and every other response to it that we've had is just more of the same, either sanctions or shows of force. And, and we've already proven over the last 15, 16 years since their first nuclear test that that's not going to get the job done. It's not going to reduce tensions on the peninsula. Uh, quite, it's been quite the opposite instead. Um, we, we see the tensions are, are once again ratcheting up, and the situation is more dangerous objectively than it has been in the past. Yeah, it, fe- it feels like that, certainly. Okay, let's get one of your headlines. Yeah, so the, the first one, uh, the, the, the headline itself is about uh, Vice President Harris's trip to Africa. The, the headline is, Vice President Harris's trip aims to deepen U.S. ties in Africa. Uh, most of the, the story is fairly straightforward description of what her trip was going to involve. Uh, she, she's already started the trip as we're recording. She was in Ghana I think yesterday. Uh, this is Tuesday of this week. Uh, so she was there yesterday uh, meeting with uh, the president of Ghana. Uh, and she's going to go on to Tanzania and, and then Zambia. Uh, what, what stood out for me in this story was a line that actually came from one of the National Security Council spokesmen, John Kirby, uh, who's at the White House, uh, talking about the, the upcoming visit of the vice president and saying that African leaders are, quote, beginning to realize that China is not really their friend. And he says, China's interests in the region are purely selfish as opposed to the United States. We are truly committed to trying to help our African friends deal with a spate of challenges. And and this quote jumped out at me. Someone posted it on Twitter, and I, I noticed it, and I thought, this is exactly why the U.S. doesn't get anywhere with so many countries in Africa and other parts of the world, because we we condescend to them, we, we talk down to them as if they don't know their own interests, they don't know how to, the, how to deal with China on their own, uh, as if they think that the Chinese are motivated only by good intentions or something, but in reality they're, they're only selfish. And whereas we are genuinely interested in helping them, we are their real friends, not China. And it, it's just, it's so, it's so ridiculous because obviously the U.S. is suddenly taking a much greater interest in Africa for its own selfish reasons because it fears the growth of Chinese and Russian influence. And as much as the government may deny that or, or try to play that down and say that they're not doing this just because of China and Russia, uh, the timing and, and the circumstances of the outreach to African countries over the last couple of years uh, prove that that's exactly what's going on. And so the, the idea that we're some sort of selfless, benevolent helpers, and then the Chinese are just, what, I don't know, predators out to, to su- su- uh, pursue their own ends, captures this mentality that people have in Washington that is really, I think, quite off-putting to a lot of countries across what many people will call the global south, uh, the, what people used to call the developing world um, in Africa and Latin America and other parts of the world. Uh, and so the, the story jumped out at me because of that quote, because it showed how really tone-deaf the U.S. is when it comes to dealing with 
African governments and, and other governments around the world. Yeah, I totally agree. And Blinken was there just a couple of weeks ago, right? So this is a full court press in terms of, of the administration panicking because of Chinese and Russian influence in the region. And there was all sorts of talk last week uh, with uh, the Biden administration's nervousness about the Wagner Group operating in these countries in the Sahel, which is not necessarily a good thing. But the fact is our counterterrorism activities there, our programs, our security assistance over the last 20 years has not made that area of the world any safer. If anything, according to recent um, terror indexes, is that terrorism is actually going up in the in the Sahel region of Africa, while it's going down in places in which we've actually started distancing ourselves like the Middle East. So I think that there's a terrible um, crisis of um, identity and, um, uh, you know, process. You know, what does the U.S. do in Africa? And right now we're just doing the same thing over and over again, hoping it'll work. And that includes these junkets or these these appearances by high level White House officials. And they have these big state dinners and they have like uh, influencers and um, pop figures joining them. But and then they leave and everything's the same. And I feel like that there's just no imagination or creativity and and how we're approaching um, these parts of the world. Um, my next headline is the a vote that's up in the Senate this week, uh, the repeal of the 2002 and ni- uh, two, uh, 1991 authorizations for the use of military force. Um, these are low-hanging fruit. Uh, both authorizations are barely used anymore. One of them was used for the war, war in Iraq the other for the first Gulf War. The real authorization for the use of military force that is being used to justify all sorts of actions post 9-11, including uh, military operations in Somalia, for example, is the 2001 authorization, uh, which Rand Paul has been trying to amend and repeal and is having a, a difficult time. Yeah, Dan, I think it'd be great to have these AUMFs repealed, but I want to see all of them repealed, not just the the, the low hanging fruit twenty twenty two and nineteen ninety one. Well, absolutely, uh, it's I mean it's it's fine that they're clearing away some of this uh, rubbish that has built up over the years. Uh, the, the, those authorizations certainly shouldn't still be on the books. They don't need to be on the books. Uh, the 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 reason that they were created has has long since ceased to exist. Uh, and, and and obviously the, the 2002 AOMF uh, for the uh, the 2003 invasion uh, was it was a terrible uh, mistake and and endorsed what was essentially a criminal decision on the, the part of the president. So or or it gave him the the go ahead to to make that decision. And so I, I'm happy to see those go away. But as you say, the 2001 AOMF is the one that matters. That's the one that actually. Um, still enables the government to wage war in all these places, even if they they end up stretching it beyond recognition. Uh, the fact that it's there for them to use, for them to, uh, to misinterpret or to to overuse, 
in the way that they do uh, is a, a real problem, and we're not going to have uh, an end to the the endless wars until that is history. And so it was. I I, uh, I applaud the. I think the nine senators. There were only nine of them that voted for yep. Rand Paul's amendment, uh, including Rand Paul. And so I, I I applaud them. They they are absolutely in the right on this. Uh, this is the only AOMF reform that needs to happen uh, is, a, is a repeal. There is no need to replace it. We don't ever need to have another one of these open-ended authorizations ever again. And I I look forward to a day when we can finally get a majority behind that repeal. Unfortunately, that's not this year. Yeah. I mean, it was a very, very lopsided vote. It was 86 to 9 but I, I have to know that the nine were, were, were a very bar- bipartisan group that included um, Democrats like Tammy Baldwin and Ben Cardin, as well as Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, um, and um, Markey in Massachusetts. And then you had uh, Senator Lee, Paul, Vance, um, and Braun. So... There's a little promise there that this can be pulled off at some point with both sides uh, really pushing uh, party wise. Uh, but, yeah, this this time wasn't it. I, I have to say it looks like this vote's going to happen sometime this week. Um, and we can talk more about that next week in terms of different amendments, because I know we want to get to at least one um, one your next and final headline, Dan. Right. And just yeah, quickly, this is a story from the Wall Street Journal that came out earlier this week. Uh, the, the headline is Al-Qaeda closes in on a stalwart U.S. ally in Africa, uh, which is a pretty sensationalist title for a story that is mostly not about that. It's it's mostly about a local ethnic conflict that's taking place in northern Ghana. Uh, but the way that they try to tie it into these larger issues of terrorism and, and uh, war on terror, uh, it was a little troubling because it seemed like they were just trying to shoehorn this ethnic conflict into the frame of counterterrorism in West Africa, which is uh, definitely not helpful in light of the fact that our counterterrorism efforts in that part of Africa have actually exacerbated the terrorism problem. And uh, the, the story is talking about how the local affiliate of Al-Qaeda in Burkina Faso may soon be spreading into Ghana. It has not yet, but it may spread and that, so that should make us ask the question, why is it that the Al-Qaeda affiliate in Burkina Faso is as powerful as it is? Why does it control so much of the country as it does? And, and one of the reasons for that is that by, by militarizing counterterrorism and encouraging a militarized response to local problems in Burkina Faso, that greatly exacerbated the conflict and has, has fueled the conflict and has actually helped jihadism in West Africa to spread and to gain, gain in strength. And so if Ghana is now threatened by that, uh, we we should be very wary of any uh, militarized solutions that people will probably want to offer as as the, the answer to this uh, situation. And so uh, then the other point I wanted to make about the story is that it seems as if Ghana was promoted to a major ally of the United States overnight, uh, even though there's absolutely no reason to think of Ghana as an ally in the sense that we think of our, our treaty allies as being. Uh, the, the the label ally gets thrown around far too freely and gets used uh, to try to, to sell people on, I think, greater U.S. involvement or greater U.S. interest in places where the U.S. interests are not actually implicated. 
And so that that was another problem I had with that story. Yeah, we're having a, 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 a bigger problem in the United States in dealing with the fact that most of these countries are no longer uh, deferring to us. Uh, they no longer care if um, that, you know, if we are, um, you know, in, in terms of how they are standing on Ukraine, for example, a lot of these countries have abstained on the war in, in Ukraine and the condemnations of Russia. They just they don't have a fear of the United States in terms of what we could do to retaliate against them um, if they don't go along with our vision of world order, for example. And it, I, I just want to add before we leave, you know, Robert Kagan was at AI talking about the Iraq war yesterday. And, you know, he's living in some strange la la land. He's a liberal neoconservative uh, of some stature who has been uh, four square in support of military interventions overseas uh, for some time now, including the Iraq war. But, you know, he said, and this is a direct quote, he says, it's affected you know, we're talking about the, the, the Iraq war failures. It's affected America's feelings about their role in the world much more than it's affected the rest of the world's feelings about the United States. The notion that the United States suffering a lasting blow to its position in the world is belied by what we're seeing around the world today. All we're hearing from the rest of the world, unless you're Russia, China or Iran, is they want more America, not less. And I, I, I see no evidence of what he just said. In anything, whether it be those votes in the U.N. On, on Ukraine or the response that these Americans are getting when they travel to, to, to Iraq, I mean, to uh, Africa, the fact that, um, you know, the leadership in South, South Africa are willing to literally carry on military drills with China and, and Russia and flaunt it in our face. Um, we, there is a crisis here. The entire global South is basically giving us the middle finger right now, and we don't know how to deal with it. And I feel like Robert Kagan, this, go, this flies in the face of his whole ideal that unless the United States is leading a global war, um, a global <laughs> uh, liberal world order, that we will return uh, to the thicket of, in the darkness of the jungle, and um, he, he he doesn't want to see reality as it's it as as it's smacking him right in the face. I, no, I think that's right, Kelly. He he does not acknowledge the the different views that are uh, quite clearly represented, uh, not just from in African governments, but we saw at the summit of the Americas last year uh, that there was a uh, a very clear, clear uh, voices of criticism of resistance against what it saw as as kind of misguided U.S. leadership or, or really uh, American leadership that was missing in action. The, the yeah, U.S. Will tend, action. To, will, will tend to neglect whole regions, will, will neglect whole continents uh, for decades, while it remains obsessed with some of these other crusades, ideological missions that it has, uh, most of all in the Middle East. Uh, and and then it comes back ten or twenty years later after having ignored these places for, for the most part, and then suddenly expects everyone to fall back in line and to repudiate their relationships with other trading partners that have actually been there and have been doing things for them. And so one of the reasons why we keep running up against uh, 
so much resistance in these places is that the Chinese have been there investing and working together with these countries. Uh, and of course, they're doing it in their own interests, obviously, uh, but, but they have been there. And they have that presence that we had simply don't have or haven't had. And and that's going to have consequences for how they relate to us and how they relate to our, our dictates in the future. And and you know, you certainly see that with the BRICS countries, uh, with Brazil and and India and South Africa, and you see that uh more broadly across whole regions. There there is much less desire to refer to us and and a much greater willingness to question our leadership when, as we know, our leadership is often flawed. It often leads our own country into the ditch. And so many other countries around the world will wonder why they should follow a leader as unreliable and as often misguided as we are. And so that's uh, that's where we stand. And I, I think Kagan must be looking only at treaty allies, and those countries that we have very close security relationships with. Those are the only ones who might conceivably be asking for more of what we've been doing. Uh, in many other parts of the world, they they may want more American investment or more uh, openness to American markets. They want, they want American markets to open up to them. That may be true. But do they want more militarized interventionism of the kind that Kagan is always selling? No. They don't, uh, and 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 I think that's also quite clear in, in many in many of our treaty allies as well. They they're not really interested in that either. Uh, what what all of these other countries are most interested in, I think, is uh, security and stability and prosperity for themselves. And to the extent the U.S. can contribute to those things, then they're willing to work with us. But when we are a disruptive force, when we're a destabilizing force, as we often can be, especially when we listen to the Kagans of the world then uh, we're going to run into a lot of resistance and a lot of and generate a lot of resentment around the world. And so that's what we need to uh, to take to heart and, and to learn. We'd like to welcome back Danny Davis to the show. Danny Davis is a senior fellow and military expert at Defense Priorities. He retired from the U.S. Army as a lieutenant colonel after 20 years, 21 years of active service. He was deployed into combat zones four times in his career, beginning with Operation Desert Storm in 91, and then to Iraq in 2009 and Afghanistan twice in 2005 and 2011. His work on defense Foreign Affairs and Social Issues has been published in the Washington Post, New York Times, Chicago Tribune, CNN, Fox News, Politico, and other publications. He was also the recipient of the 2012 Ridenhauer Prize for Truth-Telling and is a frequent guest on Fox News, Fox News Business, BBC, CNN, and other television networks. Thank you for joining us, Danny. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, so glad to have you back. Um, so now, you know, in this, I think when you were, <laughs> I think when you were on last, we were probably talking about China, which is a whole other bag of chips. And we'll probably have to have you on again to talk about that. But I'd right. love, I'd love to chat and we can't talk about that. But first, I wanted to chat about these airstrikes, uh, in Syria, U.S. airstrikes last week. 
Uh, the U.S. conducted airstrikes in eastern Syria and in retaliation of a reported attack on two bases with coalition troops there uh, that they've that they have uh, fingered the uh, IRGC, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, as the culprits. So Biden had um, authorized these airstrikes on what they said are, are IRGC strongholds in, in eastern Syria. And I believe there's been some retaliatory attacks uh, by these Iranian-backed militias even since then. So my question is, uh, can you tell us a little bit about the airstrikes last week? And furthermore, um, can you share your concern uh, for the safety of our troops out there long term? And more, more importantly, like, why are they there at all? Well, those are some great questions. <laughs> uh, I mean, just first off, right off the top, uh, you know, in terms of what happened, we, we launched a number of airstrikes again uh, against some uh, identified, uh, you know, bad guy compounds, you know, however defined, uh, which is kind of opens some curious questions is if you know these things are there and if, as the Pentagon said in its briefing, that uh, we have had since uh, Biden came into office 78 different attacks on our base. Why did you not engage them earlier? Why did you wait until someone was killed? I mean, that was the kind of the first thing that popped up on my, you know, it, it occurred to me as I heard about these things. But, you know, man, much bigger. I mean, I've been literally pounding the drums on this for many years in, in public, on television, in writing. Uh, and, uh, you know, all back during the Trump administration where, look, I said, you know, unambiguously, when Obama sent the troops into Syria, which he should never have done, did so in violation of the Constitution and, and did not have anything to do with American national security interests. But he did. And then he just left them there. And then he you know, just handed them over to Trump. They were not accomplishing any kind of uh, accomplishable, attainable military objectives when Obama had them there. They were basically just kind of helping out the Syrian Democratic Forces in Syria and the Iraqi government in Baghdad. That's basically what we were just kind of loaning out our troops for use, which, of course, I'm not for. I don't like that. It's not in accordance with our Constitution. Uh, then when Trump came into office, he, he actually gave the military an attainable mission, which was to drive uh, ISIS out of their territorial holdings with the Syrian Democratic Forces, uh, as well as to help the Iraqi security forces in that country. Well, those missions were accomplished. Uh, and, and as I wrote from the beginning, that ISIS was always a dead man walking. We did not need to do that. Uh, Syria could have done it on its own. That was a headache for Bashar al-Assad, which we relieved him of that problem, ironically, uh, because that's his country. He, the, ISIS is against everyone, or everyone's against ISIS up there. Nobody is for ISIS. So had we not done it, there are plenty of other people who would have done it because it's in their interest to do it. But for whatever reason, we chose to do it for them. And then after that military objective was accomplished, then Trump should have withdrawn them. And Trump actually said he would three times during his administration. And all three times he was resisted by the Pentagon. And God only knows who else, all these other, uh, you know, war hawk type people in Congress. Um, and, and he succumbed to that pressure. And so he never did. Even though he said he was going to do it several times, the Pentagon didn't obey the order. And he allowed the Pentagon to get away with that, which is a problem both for the Pentagon and for the president at that time. When Biden came into office about, I want to say it was uh, in June, uh, after he had come into office in 2021, I wrote another piece for 1945 in which I said, uh, 
Biden needs to do what what Obama and Trump didn't and get those troops out of Syria because they are performing no viable, valid mission for the United States. They're not there for our national security. And all we're doing is just waiting for one of these strikes to finally kill an American. And I said, if that happens, then there'll be pressure on the Biden administration to take military action. That is precisely what happened. And look, at the time I wrote that, there had been 50 previous strikes that had not caused any casualties. And I said, why do we just wait until one American is actually killed before we do anything? And as it turns out, there was uh, who knows how many, another 60 or 65 after that, before we finally took action after an American was killed. Now, of course, we get into the situation where there was a response and a retaliation uh, by the by these you know bad actors. Uh, naturally, I mean, no one should have any uh, you know foolish thoughts that by these airstrikes that they're going to stand down. The bad guys are going to stand down. That they're going to be deterred from doing something future. We always say that, and it has never happened in the whole history of this, the Middle East that we've been in there. This does not deter anyone. If anything, it stirs the hornet's nest, causes them to do more. Now, I, at least some reports say that on the second uh, second response from the violent people that it, uh, another American was wounded. Others say that there was no one, so I'm not sure which is right. But all I do know is that we had been attacked at least two more and possibly three more times after that. And to my knowledge, we haven't taken any action since that time I'm sure probably because they don't want to, uh, you know, to continue this escalation and go up more. Well, that's a problem, too, because just because no one was killed, you don't want to take action. Now, the president said nobody is going to have impunity on attacking our troops. And categorically, I agree with that. I don't want American troops somewhere. And then that the commander in chief doesn't protect them, doesn't take care of them if they get attacked. But here's my bigger argument. If the president wants to protect American troops, and to keep them from getting harmed, don't put them in harm's way unnecessarily. That's the key point there. Look, I served 20-something years, as you pointed out, and I had a tacit, uh, conscious understanding from the day one that I may be called upon to put my life at risk and possibly sacrifice my life in defense of our country. And everybody who puts on that uniform has the same understanding. And for the most part, we're happy to do that. That's one of the reasons we join up. What I am not for in the least, whether myself or anyone else in uniform, is to have their lives put at risk for no gain to our country. And that is one of my biggest problems, that, that not just this one, but many of these missions that we put things on, that we put our troops in, in harm's way for basically for political reasons or for, you know, you can fill in the blank and all kinds of other possibilities, but they're not for national security or for the defense of our country. And uh, I, I have a big problem with that. And, and now then we're kind of in a situation where if uh, these these insurgents or, or, you know, militants don't launch any more troops, then we're going to stay there. And and uh, unfortunately, I, I mean, and I understand how things work. I, my advocation is right now, get them out of there. I've been arguing since whatever, 2016, 2015. But now, of course, there's literally no chance that either the Congress or the White House would say, OK, you know what, let's get them out now, because right. then everyone would say, well, oh, that was because of the pressure put on them. And they, they chased us out and all this kind yes. of stuff. OK, they I, said I the totally same thing. I agree too. with you there. Yeah. Right. But consider this, though. That's what they said to Ronald Reagan mm -hmm. uh, in the Beirut bombing. That's exactly what they said. And he did it anyway and said, no, we're not going to sacrifice any more Americans pointlessly and no more were killed. 
In fact, it's my understanding that was it until 9-11 when we went back into the region. So no more troops got killed. Our security was not threatened by it, even though all these dark claims that, you know, Reagan would put our security at risk never happened. And the same would be true here, Kelly. And let me tell you why. ISIS does not have the capacity to come and get us in it beyond ways that our normal uh, counterterrorism capacities globally could not intercept. And look, there are, I think, 68 uh, named terrorist entities on our terror watch list that we have to worry about worldwide. OK, why do we want to have troops 900 on the ground in Syria to think that's going to protect us from Syria when we don't on these other scores of groups all around the country or the world? We have to defend ourselves against all of them, no matter where they are. And we do. We have a great track record since 9-11. We've made a lot of changes and we have a tremendous track record of that. And and there's every reason to believe that's going to continue to be effective. And of course, nothing's foolproof. But here's the kicker. Having 900 troops on a dot on the map in Syria in the middle of a hostile country that doesn't want us there does not prevent ISIS from doing anything here. It doesn't. <clears throat> to say that our troops are there on the ground to work for the enduring defeat of ISIS, which the uh, I think General Ryder said last week, uh, is nonsense. It, it's the equivalent of trying to drain a swimming pool with a teaspoon in a in a downpour. You, yeah, every time you stick that teaspoon in there, you can get water out, but it's not going to have any <laughs> impact. How many times have we taken out a you know, an ISIS leader, whatever, every time we do, we make a big press conference out yep. of it. And, you know, in the imp- impression giving that we're making progress, we're not. Uh, well, and if you don't need to go any further than to look at Al Qaeda, they've been in operation for 35 years. We've taken out bin Laden. We've taken out Zawahiri and they're still there. We took out Baghdadi. We took out Al Zarqawi, uh, you know, from, from ISIS when they first came up, they're still there. You will never take enough of their leaders out that there's not immediately somebody to replace. So our the Pentagon is not correct. They are not keeping us safe there, and they are not doing any value for our country. Well, and let me ask a quick question. How many of these 80 attacks against our troops in Syria have been ISIS-generated attacks? Because it seems to me that most of them are from these Iranian-backed militias who probably, in, 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 in many cases— are retaliating for us killing uh, Soleimani right. three years ago. And so it has nothing to do with ISIS. It has more to do with our presence in the region, um, our, 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 um, our assistance to the Iraqis and uh, the Soleimani assassination. And so that doesn't that muddy the waters in terms of like why we're there and why we're being attacked may have very little to do with ISIS? Well, the truth is, we we really don't know most of these attacks. We have no idea where they come from. We yeah. just know all of a sudden, here's coming a rocket. But there's no question that I mean, Iran I, I from the day that Soleimani was killed said that we're going to retaliate. In fact, every time you have one of these things, they say we're going to retaliate, and they make good on their threats. They they honestly do that. Uh, now we say in uh, one of the one of the things that the Pentagon is saying in recent days is that, well, it's really not for those groups. I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll kill them when they attack us, but it's really because of all these prisoners that we have in, in, uh, in, in the Middle East, in the ISIS prisoners in Syria. Hmm. If we shut those, those prisons down, those guys would flood into Europe, and then they would come straight to America. That's what they're saying. They actually said that just a few days ago. 
That is nonsense as well, because here's why you don't have to you know take anyone's word for this. They're already, according to many Pentagon estimates, 30, 40,000 ISIS people still in Syria, not in a prison. Hmm. Why are they not flooding into Europe? If they're free, they could do it today if they wanted to, but they don't. They don't attack us today because they can't. And, and I'll just on a sound of kind of an aside, as an American who we say we believe in the, the rule of law and, and freedom and fairness and all that, basically we have thrown all of these guys that we captured during that time when Trump was in the office, when we were capturing uh, the territory that ISIS had, we basically put them in prisoner of war camps. And now then, and I said this at the time, it's like, what's the plan to get them out of there? Because, you know, even in a normal war, you're going to, uh, you know, have repatriation at the end. But now then, we don't want to because they're dangerous and they're, what's the word they're using? They're being radicalized by staying in there. I have no doubts that that's true. But you can't just leave them there forever. I mean, literally, it's not a life sentence. And then consider this, Kelly. Now then, we're not defending national security interests. We're prison guards. So you have American military acting as prison guards indefinitely and just waiting for finding out when the next drone strike or missile attack will kill an American. That's that's inconscient. It should be unconscionable that we're using our military that way. But that is absolutely what we are doing. I don't care what anyone says. That's the practical, fundamental reality based on their own words. I'm not twisting anything. That's the on the ground reality right now. So we're wasting our troops. We're putting them at uh, their lives at risk for no gain. And let me just tell you something. You want to talk about uh, uh, people being radicalized? Guarantee all of the family members of all those people who are kept in prison forever are radicalized. And they get so more by the day at the injustice of not even having any judicial process. There's no chance that they can be released. There's no process. Those, all those relatives of every one of those are angry and will take action if they can't. You want to shut that off? Let's have some kind of way to get them out of there. And there's been some ways talked about, and they're all hard and there's no easy path. And there's definitely no guarantees that some of those won't rejoin the fight. But look, we have to start somewhere. Otherwise, we just keep it going forever. Yeah, and unfortunately, that's the, the real problem here. That it is an indefinite commitment. Uh, I mean, and the, the rhetoric around this uh, goal of enduring defeat of ISIS suggests uh, it's, it's basically an impossible objective that they're being given. Um, and then you have the complications with, with these militia attacks as well. Uh, how concerned are you that these back-and-forth attacks with the Iranian-backed militias could escalate uh, into something larger uh, and, and could end up spiraling into a, a larger conflict with Iran itself? Yeah, that, that's always my concern. I, I don't think at the moment that that's, that that's a, a danger today. And I think the Biden administration recognizes that. I think that's the reason they didn't launch a, another retaliation after those rockets came in because they didn't kill anyone. Well, look, that precedent was set uh, after Soleimani was killed and, and Iran physically launched all those missiles that, that hit our troops. Uh, you know, but none of them were killed. So Trump just kind of said, okay, we'll let y'all have that. That's, we'll just call it, uh, uh, even and we'll say an end of the day. We'll move on. Uh, but the, you know, the Iranians realized we launched all these missiles, blew up an American airbase and nothing else happened to us. So that just kind of, in, you know, makes them think, okay, well, there is a level we can do. Uh, and, and you don't want to get to the point where you find out, did they try to push that a little bit further? And, 
you know, what happens if they, they, you know, one of these missile strikes like hits a, a mess facility or something and like 30 Americans are killed at once. You know, that's a that's a different story. This one was a contractor. And as sad as it is, some people go, oh, well, it wasn't an, an American troop. Well, it's an American. It doesn't make any difference what the uniform or what they're physically wearing. But we, we don't make that. But if it was, you know, a large number of troops were killed, then, you know, then the, the, all these war hawks and people would be screaming for massive retaliation and in Iran. And that's where the real risk comes from. So, you know, we never know when something like that may happen. And that could really ramp it up and cause more. The Biden administration recognizes they don't want another war. So they don't want they want to do the least amount possible just to keep things, you know, the status quo going. So right now they're going to try to do that. But accidents, miscalculations or errors could always throw that up. And every day we're there, the risk of exactly what you talked about stays alive. Right. And, and as you say, that these troops are being exposed to danger for no good reason. Uh, that they, They're not really uh, doing anything connected with our security uh, and haven't been for a while. Uh, but we heard just this week, I think on Sunday, uh, John Kirby was on one of the Sunday shows, and he said that Biden is absolutely committed to keeping the troops in Syria uh, for the foreseeable future. Uh, and, and we saw, as you said uh, before, that there, there was a, a lot of resistance to Trump's uh, attempt, or, or at least his his impulse to try to get the troops out of Syria. Uh, they, they were able to stop that from happening. They were able to keep some of them there. Uh, why is there so much resistance in the Pentagon and the White House to pulling these troops out? Uh, because, as you say, the the official explanations don't really make sense. So, so what what do you think it is? The, I, I mean, I, I can speculate left and right, but what I know for certain, uh, because uh, you know, you and and Kelly and many of us others have been you know beating our head against a wall for many many years of saying, look, the, you know, these missions don't help our security. I mean, look, in, in the, the Afghanistan one, let's, let's just start with there. The Afghan war, by the summer of 2002, that war was over, over. The, the al-Qaeda had been just dispersed to the four winds and were not a valid threat at that time. The Taliban had been eliminated, not defeated, but wiped out. There was no Taliban of any kind of organized resistance remaining. That was the perfect time to withdraw. We could have left. There was no enemy for the for the the surviving Afghan government or the, the resulting Afghan government to have to worry about. They could have taken their time and formed their own security and whatever, had years to do that. We should have left, but we can't leave. We always want to think we need to stay a little bit longer. Let's let's help them out here. Let's turn this into a humanitarian mission. And then everywhere we've been, whether it's it's Iraq, Syria, Afghanistan, uh, Yemen, Somalia, for crying out loud, you know, all in Africa. Anytime you talk about taking anybody out, you have this reflexive, absolute, you know, stalwart resistance to pulling troops out. And they always say the same thing. We'll create a vacuum. Boy, my goodness, we'll create a vacuum that fill in the blank. China, Russia, uh, Iran, some other country, uh, some other organization will rush in and fill. That's nonsense. It's always been nonsense. Every time it's validated, like like the one with Ronald Reagan in, in I think it was 1983, every time they claim that there's a threat or a vacuum to be filled and we leave, nothing happens bad. Yeah, something somebody will step in there, but that doesn't mean anything to, to harm our security because we have this extraordinarily expensive national security apparatus that we've built globally with this ability to project power like no other country. 
that keeps us safe. So we don't need to have troops and little dots on the map at various places, which don't work anyway. Uh, but that still, I, I think that there are too many people that think, man, if you pull that out, then where else is next? Somalia, Africa, they're going to, where else are they going to pull us out of? So they're like, if you start one, then the whole house of cards could come down. Of course, every house of cards should come down or every card that's not directly related to American national security should come down because that will help our national security. Right now, we are spread to the four winds and we are dispersed in our power everywhere. If you believe that China is a pacing threat and that we, you know, we have to be ready to fight major power confrontation, then the last thing you should want is all these ankle biters and these small little deployments all over the world because it dissipates our power. So now I'm certainly not an advocate of fighting China. In fact, I'm vigorously against it. But if, if it ever does happen, I want us to have a strong national security and not one that's been dispersed for no value to our country across the globe. Unfortunately, no one likes to think of that. And I fear, Dan, that there, we're going to find out the reality of that one day when we actually do engage in a large war. And it's exposed that all of this dispersion with training, with resources and everything else has weakened our ability to fight a large scale war. And it'll be too late by then, because the other side, I assure you, is not dispersed. They are not dissipated. They are very sharply focused at the highest level on potentially fighting us. And that's only one of many for us. And that's a that's a real problem that weakens our national security the way we do it right now. Exactly. And it's worth noting that uh, Congressman Matt Gates had attempted uh, with a bill to uh, withdraw our withdraw our troops from Syria. I think it was two weeks ago uh, with a war powers bill uh, that would have um, put to the test whether or not there uh, that U.S. troops should be over overseas in this capacity. And it lost, unfortunately, 103 members of Congress did vote uh, with Gates. And it was it was uh, both Republican and Democrats. The progressives actually came out in favor of uh, Matt Gates's bill, which is which is hopeful. It's hopeful that there is a bipartisan interest in getting those troops home. Unfortunately, Congress, um, the majority of Congress still doesn't want to take the war powers, um, their war powers authorities seriously enough to actually put these things up to a serious vote, unfortunately. Um, we've run well, out you of know, time. I mean, you, you see, oh, go ahead. The, you, you, real quick, you, you see that, unfortunately, it's the leaders of, of both parties yeah. that are the most behind always keeping us there. And there's probably a lot of reasons for that. But, you know, you have the Matt Gates and some of these others. You may get a large number, but, I mean, it's nowhere near enough to actually trip the balance. And those guys hold a monopoly on power. And, unfortunately, yeah. uh, they're, I mean, I won't speculate what their motivations are, but we do know for sure that they stand against it. And the people like Gates, I'm glad that he was trying to do that. But uh, I just don't know how you break yeah. through that short of a disaster on the battlefield. Exactly. Well, uh, Danny, thank you so much for joining us today, and I hope you'll come back. Uh, we can talk about other other war fronts, <laughs> including China yeah. and Ukraine. There's just a lot to talk about, and we really unfortunately there is. Yeah, we appreciate your expertise as always. Thanks so much, Kelly. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack 
at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time. 